Heavenly Father, as we pause in our service of worship to you to simply talk with you, to ask you to enter into your throne room, it's with the recognition that you want to hear us. Lord, you know all that is going on. You know the position of every molecule in the universe, so to somehow think that you don't is silly. Lord, we are, as a country, as a people, tired. We're tired, Lord. We're weary. God, it is our prayer that you would bring times of refreshing. I pray especially for the medical community at this time. We so easily take for granted the sacrifices that these people who serve us have to make. And in this congregation, we have many nurses, we have many healthcare workers, we have doctors, social workers, nurses. Lord, I pray that you would intervene for them. There is so much stressor, stress, so much pressure, so much uncertainty. I think about all of these people just in our church who are leading, who are feeling the weight of this moment. And it is so heavy. God, I pray that you would lift them up. I think about Amy at the, at the school and all of the, I mean, school nurses didn't sign up for what they're having to deal with. <laughs> Please, Lord, bring a time of refreshing. We need you, God. Protect our medical staff. Give wisdom to the directors of these hospitals and these nursing floors. God, in this moment, we, we need you. There are many among us who are either sick with this disease or are quarantined because of it. I pray Lord, for those that right now in this moment are feeling the effects of this virus, they might be watching this right now, and may they know that we are praying for you and that God is attentive and he loves you. Lord God, we pray for the leaders of our nation that are having to make difficult decisions. I pray for this election that has been so divisive. I pray for godly resolution to this election. I ask that our country would be given wisdom. And of course, wisdom doesn't come to countries, it comes to people through you, Lord God. So when I ask for wisdom for our country, I'm asking that you would give wisdom to us. Our leaders, but also us. We, the people, we need to know your direction, Lord. We want to know your direction. God, we love you. We give you thanks and praise for the, the places where you have been at work in our lives, 
some of which we've mentioned this morning, but there are so many more. And now, Lord, we just ask that we would rest in your protection and love and that we would be your hands and feet in this community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we looked at the very familiar parable of the Good Samaritan, but we discovered a richness of meaning in that parable that, well, it it may have made you see that parable in a different way than you saw it before. Many of you commented to me during the week that you had never understood that parable from that perspective. Well, it's not my intention to discover strange or unique or hidden secrets in Scripture In fact, I am actually trying not to find hidden things. I would like to read a short quote from a book that I studied in seminary. This was and still is one of the most helpful books I've ever read on interpreting Scripture. It'll be on the screen here in case you want to pick one up for yourself. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. I strongly recommend this book. It is college-level reading and it is challenging Uh, I have taken a number of small groups in our church through this book, chapter by chapter. I want to read a short quote from the very first page of the introduction. So here's the quote. Let it be said at the outset and repeated throughout that the aim of good interpretation is not uniqueness. One is not trying to discover what no one else has ever seen before. So I challenge you, because many of you listen to the radio, and for the most part, there's good stuff on the radio, Christian stations, Christian ministers preaching, but not always. If you're listening to a pastor on the radio, and they say that there is a hidden meaning in Scripture that they have just now heard and nobody else has said before but them, I might recommend you turn it off. There's not a whole lot of new stuff after 2,000 years. 2,000 years, people have been looking at the New Testament and longer in the Old. The goal of preaching and the goal of Bible study is not to discover something that no one has ever seen before. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't richness there, and that doesn't mean that you won't find things that other people have found, but they're new to you. But you see the difference there. I want you to know that last week was a good example of me learning alongside you what God is saying to us through His Word. I, like you, am seeking to hear God's voice in His Word. Sometimes, when we are really seeking God in His Word, God shows us a different view of a passage, a new insight that was there all along, but we did not comprehend it, a depth where we had not seen a depth before. That's what happened to me last week as I studied the parable of the Good Samaritan 
And I tried to bring you along with on the journey of discovery that God had led me through. More often, however, it is not understanding that is the problem. (laughs) Most often, the problem is not that we fail to understand God's word. It's that we do understand it, but simply choose not to follow it. That's more often the problem with Scripture. Again, another quote from, from the book. In fact, we are convinced that the single most serious problem people have with the Bible is not with a lack of understanding, but with the fact that they understand many things too well. For example, with such a text as Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining or arguing. The problem is not understanding it, but obeying it and putting it into practice. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Most of the Bible is simple to understand. It is the living out of what the Word says. It's living it that's hard. We usually, most of the time, understand it. It's putting it into practice that's hard. Can I ask you a question? Just imagine... What would our world look like today just if Christians followed that passage? Just that one. Only one. What would our nation look like if the Christians in this nation just did that? What would our state look like? What would our town look like? What would our church look like? Just with that one. Hmm. I challenge you families out there, during this time of increased anxiety, it is my guess, and in some cases more than a guess, that you are not doing a nightly family devotion time. That would be my guess. Because you're tired and because you're stressed out. And when you're tired and you're stressed out, you're probably just doing the bare minimum just not to somehow freak out at your kids every day. And you're just right on the edge. And I've heard it described like this. It's almost like on a 0 to 10 scale of anxiety, it's like everybody is just always at an 8, right? That's the way it feels like right now. And what happens is, if something comes along that just adds two levels of anxiety, you go from 8 to 10, and 10 is when you can't even think because you're so anxious. Now, some people, when they're anxious, they feel frightened. But other people, when they get anxious, they get angry. Where are you? If we're all at an 8 and we get bumped to a 10 easily, we're all, we've lost our minds. In normal circumstances, if you're at like a two or a three anxiety and, and, and something that adds two levels, that only takes you to a four or a five. Can I suggest to you, that's where almost everybody is. We're all at an eight. Again, what we said earlier already, and it's interesting because I was planning on saying this and then, and then Lynn, you bring it up, right? Marriages that are hurting right now, it's because everybody's already at this level of stress, And then, that's all it takes. Bam, you've lost your mind. Do not make big decisions right now. 
I would like to say that's good advice. A big decision is deciding to leave your spouse. <laughs> that's a big decision. This is not a good moment for that. Wait. Wait so that you can think clearly again. And these are all the big decisions of life. I, I just think now is the wrong time to make those kind of big decisions. Families, especially those families that are not practicing this family devotion thing I'm, I've been talking about for years. Heidi, would you put that verse back on the screen? There's your family devotion topic. So if you're having trouble just um, not sure what to do devotions on and, and, and because of that you've been paralyzed and there's just too much stress, there it is. Just look at that verse tonight. Just talk about it as a family. In fact, that might work for the next seven days. Just every night you come together, you read that verse, you talk about how that verse is going in your life, and then you pray together as a family. There, for the next seven days, devotions are ready. Ready to roll. That is a good idea. Well, our passage in Luke chapter 10 it fits into the category of simple to understand, difficult to obey. You see, understanding is not the problem with what we're going to read today. It's putting it into practice that's the problem. Would you pray with me? Lord God, as we open your word, it is with expectation. Expectation that you are going to speak to us through your word. Holy Spirit, that cannot happen when we only engage our intellect, we need to engage all that we are and we need to recognize that this only happens because you, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Speak now, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister named Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha... Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. <laughs> A word for this moment like no other. I start this message today, well, it's actually the middle of the message, but I start my discussion of the passage by saying this. I think there's a fairly good chance I am the most guilty of this that we're going to talk about today. There is a fairly good chance that I need to hear this message more than you do. Just throwing that out there. If you feel like I'm preaching directly at you, I'm not. I'm actually preaching directly to me. 
Well, I've mentioned to you before that there are certain benefits to preaching expositorily through an entire book of Scripture, all the way through. And, of course, we are in that journey right now with Luke. And remember, we did that with Ezra and Nehemiah. Remember that? We did that with Hebrews. In the Sunday school class, we've gone through 1 Corinthians. We've gone through Revelation. There's something good about going all the way through from start to finish, not jumping around, picking little bits out here and there. Today, we're going to reap one of the benefits of expository preaching. And of course, I've also recommended to you before, one of the really good practices that you can do is to read an entire book of the Bible all the way through in one sitting. Uh, My discovery has been that Christians almost never do this because they get like a a My Daily Bread that has like one... By the way, I I do My Daily Bread every day. I do the computer version. I'm not saying it's bad. We, We have it for you to use. But here's the danger of that. The danger of My Daily Bread is you get one verse of Scripture a day. One verse, maybe a small passage. You don't ever get an entire book all together. You know, these books, many of them are letters in the New Testament. They're meant to be read in one shot. When's the last time you read a letter and just read the first paragraph and said, well, I better put that away for a while, right? It doesn't make sense. I encourage you, take a book of the Bible and read it all the way through in one sitting. Well, that's too much. Oh, really? How long is a football game? Three and a half hours, you manage to get through that, right? You can, you can read the entire book of Luke in less than three and a half hours. And some of you are like, yeah, but it takes a year to preach through it. Yeah, I heard you. I heard your little comments in your subconscious, yeah. Well, I talk about context a lot. Context matters. One type of context that matters a great, they all matter, but one that I speak to you a lot is called literary context. Literary context is, a, is taking consideration of the words and the passages that are all around the passage that you're studying. Now, I've told you before that it is almost always a mistake to pluck one verse out of the Bible and use that verse. I've said that to you many times. This is actually a statement of literary context. You shouldn't just pluck one out. Especially in the letters of the New Testament, you should always read the whole paragraph. Never just pluck one out. Because context matters. It, it makes a matter for the meaning. And actually, of course, as you know, this is true for most of life, Right? not just the Bible, the context something is said in really does matter a great deal about what the meaning is. I mean, all of this talk about fake news, half of fake news is because they've pulled one part of an article in, but not let the whole, artic- the whole statement stand. It's the same thing with Scripture. And when you do that, as we've discovered in this time of political division, you can make someone say anything you want to by doing that. By pulling out that one piece. It happens all the time. And it, it becomes whatever that reporter wants to emphasize, they pull out the one piece and leave the rest out. Do you see that? That's what I'm talking about with Scripture. That's the same thing that's happening with Scripture all the time. Christians do this all the time. They pull out one thing and emphasize just that one thing. When the whole context actually makes that one thing mean something different. Okay, literary context matters. And I want to show you now in this story of Martha and Mary, something you maybe haven't considered before. Again, this isn't hidden. This isn't secret knowledge. It's just something you've probably never thought of before. 
My guess is that most of you have heard the story of Mary and Martha before. In fact, Mike, you've probably heard it many times, just like the Good Samaritan. You've heard many, it's, it's like part of our culture, right? But it is also my guess that you have never considered the literary context of the story of Martha and Mary. So that's what I want to do briefly, because I think that you'll go at the end of this, oh, all right? So, this is an actual question. I want you to give the answer. If you can't give me the answer, you haven't been paying attention to what I've been saying. Here we go. What is the story that comes right before the story of Mary and Martha in the book of Luke? What? The Good Samaritan. <laughs> I, I've already said it. We just preached that last week. I gave a reminder. The story of the Good Samaritan comes right before the story of Martha and Mary. If I would have asked you that question a couple weeks ago, my guess is you would have went, I don't know. I don't know what story comes before Mary and Martha. Again, we've got this problem as Christians. We take the Bible in sections instead of looking at it as a whole. So we only know the sections. But the way they're organized matters, and here's, here's why. So I want, you, I want you to consider again, we're going to go back and read a section we read last week. I want you to consider again, this section I'm reading is the introduction to the Good Samaritan. But I want you to listen to it. So here we go, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. And of course, then, then the, the Pharisee, the lawyer, goes on to say, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So, and then that launches into the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? But that introduction matters. And if you listen to the sermon last week, you're going to know that the, the, the Good Samaritan comes next, but I want you to consider now something more. That thing that the lawyer stated... I told you what that thing was, and you know what that thing was. It is the great commandment. Like that, that little passage is so important that we've actually given it a special name. It's the great commandment. And I told you last week that in Matthew and Mark, it is Jesus himself who gives the answer. He doesn't ask someone else for the answer. The great commandment. The combination of that verse in Deuteronomy and the verse in Leviticus together to create the great commandment. Love God with all that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. And notice, that's not the great commandments, is it? That is the great commandment, singular. That one commandment has two parts. Love God with all that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. And now let me ask you this. Which of those two parts that I've just said to you about the great commandment is the parable of the Good Samaritan an example of? Which one? Love your neighbor as yourself. The parable of the Good Samaritan is Jesus' answer, and he is giving an example of love your neighbor as yourself. I wonder... 
Well, let's just, let me read this again. And now, with that in mind, listen again to the story of Mary and Martha and tell me what this is an example of. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Do you see it? Something you've never seen before would be my guess. Jesus is still talking about the great commandment. Luke has purposely organized his gospel in such a way that the question about what, the, what is the greatest commandment, how to inherit eternal life, is followed by two stories that give the perfect example of the two parts of the greatest commandment. Literary context. If you only pull the story of Martha and Mary out and don't look at the rest of this, you will fail to grasp that the story of Mary and Martha is actually the prime perfect example of what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Isn't that interesting? And you've never even thought about it that way before because for our whole lives we've been trained to pick one little piece out. Sunday school curriculum does this oftentimes. It jumps around. It, uh, lots of churches preach through a, a liturgical calendar. In other words, they, they preach through a three-year cycle. And it jumps around. There are Christians, and now listen to this, there are Christians that have never had a pastor preached through a book of Scripture the way that we're doing with Luke. And so they never make the connections. The connections that are there on purpose. Luke did this on purpose to show us, here's the most important thing to get to eternal life. Here is the great commandment. Here's the summation of the entire Old Testament law brought into a new covenant. And now... Here is the exact examples of each part of the great commandment. And you never would have noticed it if I wouldn't have said it right now. It is so important that we read Scripture this way. It is so important. My hope would, was that I would see in this moment rapt attention at what I'm saying because little light bulbs are clicking on and off well hopefully just on in your head I'm seeing it I'm seeing it that's so important that you come to an understanding of scripture in this way with context now I do want you to notice something else and then we're going to move forward quickly what does it look like to love your neighbor? Give me an example of loving your neighbor. The parable of the Good Samaritan. That is the best example. Now, what does it look like to love God? The story of Mary and Martha. For the rest of your life, it is my hope 
that when you think about loving God and when you think about loving your neighbor, these are the examples that come to mind first. And that would be the most biblical thing you could do. Everybody got that? Everybody got that? All right. It's not, again, I want to say this, it's not the greatest commandments, it's a commandment. Two parts, one commandment. Loving God, loving your neighbor. Now, you should be able to see the connection, because hopefully I've made that connection well enough, about the story of Mary and Martha and the great commandment. And how they fit together with the parable of the Good Samaritan. That is a unit of Scripture. And in fact, if you were looking closely at the bulletin last week, you will notice that the Scripture passage I referenced went all the way to the end of the story of Mary and Martha. I just didn't get to it. Because when I wrote what passage I was going to preach on in the bulletin, I hadn't, God hadn't yet showed me the, the different perspective on the Good Samaritan that I hadn't seen before. And so I didn't have time in a sermon to do both. So it's split in two. Now, look at verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Now, first of all, just very briefly, this passage should bring to your mind two passages earlier in the book of Luke that when Jesus sent out the 12 disciples, and then a little later he sent out the 72. Remember we talked about the sending of the 72. And remember what Jesus said to those messengers he was sending out. Look again at Luke chapter 10, verses 5 through 9. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, he will return, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a house and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Now, here's the reason I bring that up, because the story of Mary and Martha is exactly that. Jesus has come into a village, I mean, it even says, like it follows the pattern exactly. Jesus comes into a village, he goes into the house of Mary and Martha, where he is welcomed. And then what does it say? Eat and drink whatever's before you, right? Well, what do you think Martha's up to? What do you think Martha's up to? <laughs> this story of Mary and Martha is the perfect example of a house that has welcomed a messenger of the kingdom. Okay? And in that story, Jesus has already prepared us, and Luke has prepared us, in a story like that, the messengers are to eat and drink whatever is put before them. All right? They're, they're supposed to receive the hospitality of the host. As the host receives the message of the kingdom. Now look again. Look again at verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a, young, where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. There's, there it is, right? She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what was said. Think about it. They're bringing the message of the kingdom in. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. You can see it. It's clear. 
What Jesus had said before is exactly happening now. These sisters said, open the house. And now, it's just, it's so interesting to me because the Greek word for preparations, you see that in verse 40? But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. It doesn't come through in English very well. And some other versions translate this with a more nuanced approach. The word preparations means making a meal. She's slicing up potatoes. She's putting out the dinnerware. She's got a roast in the oven. She's working in the kitchen. And she's doing, this is important, exactly what she was supposed to do. What are you supposed to do when you host people in your house? Well, just go to the fridge, figure out what you want to do. <laughs> no. What is the appropriate thing to do? You guys know this. The, the, your guests sit and relax, and you work your butt off in the kitchen, right? That's what you're supposed to do. It's the right thing to do. That's that word right there, preparations. Every single one of you that is in here, well, many of you should know exactly what that word means. Because that hasn't changed in thousands of years. Okay? But there's another Greek word here that I want to explain that's also helpful. Now, it said there's preparations, okay? But now look at the word uh, distraction. Do you see distracted? But Martha was distracted by all the preparations. This is one of those spots when knowing Greek uh, is, is helpful. And I know just enough Greek to be dangerous. <laughs> okay, So here, here's something that I found that was very interesting in my study. The word distracted in Greek is pronounced perispeomai. Perispeomai. And you might think, well, that doesn't help me at all, right? Except the beginning of the word is peri. P-E-R-I. Like, that's literally how you spell it in Greek. Peri speomai. Do you know that prefix peri has come into English from Greek? It's the same root where we get the word perimeter. Perimeter. Peri. P-E-R-I. Even spelled the same in Greek. But Mary was distracted... She was on the perimeter. She was hovering on the perimeter of what was happening in the center. And what she was doing was not correct. The Greek word perispeomai, her going around, it means that she was never in the center where she was supposed to be. She was just circling on the edges. And then verse 39. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Who's on the perimeter and who's in the center? Mary is in the center. 
Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. This idea of sitting at the feet means that she was listening to the teacher, to the rabbi. She was opening herself up to the message of the kingdom. She is in the center, not the perimeter. She is in the right place. And Martha is incensed. Now, my guess is most of you in here have been incensed when you're working hard and somebody else is sitting on their butt. Oh, you know what I'm talking. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. That irritates us, doesn't it? That's why I wonder family gatherings are like the scariest time. Because it drives you crazy when you're working hard and somebody else is sitting. It drives us crazy. And Martha is driven crazy. Doesn't Mary know there's work to be done? We have guests. That Jesus is going to get hungry. The teacher's going to get hungry and the meal's not going to be ready. Because I'm over here all working all by myself. Can you hear this? Get your butt in here. I wonder how many times Martha was, you know, Jesus is facing the other way and Martha comes out and catches Mary's eye. And when, when Martha, when Mary's just like, yeah, I'm not going to look at that. And she goes back to Jesus. Can you imagine what Martha must have been like? Are you for real right now? It got so bad that Martha finally went into the room and instead of talking to Mary, Martha talked to Jesus. Look what she said to Jesus. Look at verse 40. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations. She was distracted by all the preparations that she came to Jesus. She didn't come to Mary. She came to Jesus. She came, do you have that in your head? Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all of the work? Tell her to help me. Do you know what that is? That's a command. That's a command. Martha gave the creator of the universe a command. <laughs> she didn't talk to Mary. She talked to Jesus. <laughs> How many of us, feeling overwhelmed by the never-ending work of daily life and all of the stress that we are under right now, how many of us have cried out, Do something! Tell those people to get off their butts and help me! <laughs> Am I getting a little bit too close to home right now? A little bit too close? Just a little bit. <laughs> get off your butt. And then when finally when they, when they still don't get off their butt, and I'm not supposed to use the word butt in a sermon, but too bad. Okay? Because that is the perfect explanation of what's happening here. When they don't move, then you cry out to the Lord. They won't move. Lord, tell them to move. Why don't you do something? Why don't you make them do something? 
It's not fair. This isn't fair. I have seen more people act like five-year-olds in the past nine months (laughs) than I have ever seen in my life. (laughs) I'm amazed. And I might be one of them sometimes. Because I'm tired and I'm frustrated. And it's not fair. Tell them to change God. Tell them to move. Tell them to get going. You know what's interesting to note? Martha tells Jesus what he must say. Mary listens to what Jesus is saying to her. Martha, that was good. I'm going to say that again. Martha tells Jesus what he must say. Mary listens to what Jesus says to her. Wow. Hmm. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered in verse 41. You are worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. (laughs) What an answer. There's so much in this one little statement of Jesus. And Jesus' answer is maddening. Martha's life is consumed by worry and being upset. It's consumed. Can I stop here and ask you? What is your life consumed with right now? My guess is that many of you would fall into Martha's category. You are worried and upset by many things. If this is you, then you need to hear what Jesus says next. (laughs) Only one thing is needed. You know, this is one of those moments where I regret the title of my sermon. If you looked in your bulletin, the title of my sermon is Mary and Martha. That's a terrible sermon title. I was just like, we got to print the bulletin. We, it's, Heidi's only got so many hours. We got to make it, okay, just call it Mary and Martha, right? Lame, lame. Now, of course, after I'm at this point, I know the correct title of the sermon. Would you like to know the correct title of this sermon? Here it is. One necessary thing. Dang, that's so good. And I didn't get it in by printing. That's the title of this sermon. One necessary thing. If you are worried and upset about many things, please listen. (laughs) There's only one Necessary thing. To sit at the feet of Jesus. To enter into a relationship with the teacher, the rabbi. To follow him, to learn from him, 
to love him, to listen to him. You know, before the service, uh, Mike Fitzloff and I were up here talking, and we, we thought if with my phone, I can control the soundboard with the phone. I was going to have a button where I could have an amen play, or possibly like a, a laugh track, you know, preach it. Appreciate that. Then I don't have to figure that technical system out. I'm done figuring out technical stuff. One necessary thing. And this story for people like me drives me crazy. And if you're driven crazy right now, it's because I like to accomplish things. I like to get tasks done. I am a task-oriented person. I make lists. And I cross them out when I get them done. For some of you, that's crazy. But for me, that's how I, I it's, it's like rattling in my brain. I have to write it down, right? And then it's, I get like 15 things on my list. And it's like, oh, that's why my brain was rattling, right? You ever do that? And then, th- this just happened last week. When you get one of the things on the list done, like I stop everything and I go to my list and I cross it out before I do something else. Who does that? Yes! And that's, this story should drive you insane. Because you know what? The, the meal still has to get made. I hate that. I shouldn't say I hate it. This passage of Scripture drives me insane. Like, almost to the point of crazy. Because Jesus' answer it's not, it, it's only one thing is needed, okay? But you, you know what? If I was Martha, I would have been like, well, you want to eat, right? Right? Wouldn't, if you're a task-oriented person, and you're the person that's in charge of this stuff, wouldn't you be tempted to say something snarky to Jesus right there? I totally would be. I'd be like, Okay, I guess we're going to be hungry. I probably would have taken my apron off, you know. Fine! Go walk away like that. Yeah. You know, you would have done it too. You would have been there, at least in your mind. You know you would have been. Was it wrong? This, this, this is good. Was it wrong for Martha to prepare a meal for her guests? No, that was right. In fact, it was expected. It was even, the meal was even part of what Jesus said was part of the experience of sharing the gospel, the hospitality experience, and that the messenger should receive the meal. And notice this, Jesus does not tell Martha to stop making the meal. Did you catch that? He doesn't say, don't make the meal. But another question, was it wrong for Martha to ask her sister to help prepare the meal? Yes. Perfect timing. If you couldn't hear that at home, Edith was like, no. And that's exactly the answer that we would think. Well, that shouldn't be wrong. Martha should have 
the right to tell Mary to come help her make the meal. That's, that's fair. But Jesus gives the opposite answer. Why? Well, Jesus gives his answer to that too. Because Mary's doing the better thing. Mary's doing the better thing. Why? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And for those of you out there that your anxiety is an eight, verging on ten at any given moment, and you are exhausted, might I remind you, might I remind myself, there's only one necessary thing. And so now, to end this message, I want to leave a passage of Scripture lingering in your mind. I would like, if possible, this last Scripture that I put on the screen and that I read, I want it to just soak into you for this coming week. All right? So we're going to leave Luke for a second, but we're still in the words of Jesus. From John chapter 15, verses 5 through 6. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Oh! Does anybody feel like they are withering right now? The, the withering that you are feeling is because you've forgotten the one necessary thing. Is your marriage in trouble? You have forgotten the one necessary thing. Are you so angry with the situation that you can't even talk to somebody that's on the other side of this issue? You have forgotten the one necessary thing. And when you forget the one necessary thing, you will wither. To end this sermon, a number of weeks ago I gave you a challenge. And it was a challenge for a week, but it was my hope that it would go on. A challenge to simply sit for a period of time unhurried with the Lord. To just maybe bring a journal and a pen and ask the Lord, God, what do you want to say to me? And then be quiet and listen. It has to be unhurried time. List makers out there, task-oriented people out there, I, this is me and you that went like this when I said that, when you like to cross things off a list. Listen to me. It's got to be unhurried time. This is not another thing on your list. 
This is not a thing you're going to cross off. This is going to be, I am going to sit and listen to God until He releases me. And let me tell you something. He wants to do this with you. He wa- do you think God wants to speak to you? And I have been saying this as I've talked with so many of you about the mask debate and as we've talked about all of the craziness about is this a thing to do or not to do or what to do. I have tried to say to you, stop and just, God wants to speak to you. Stop and be unhurried and just listen to him. And when he speaks, he will. When he speaks, write it down. Well, let me tell you what. You're going to say to me, because I already say this, I am a task oriented. I am up here on tasks. I hate doing this. Isn't that crazy? Because I feel like there's 50 things I'm not doing while I'm doing that. I know how that feels. And I come up with excuses. Well, whatever I write down is just going to be coming from my own brain. That's not going to be God. I come up with a million excuses of why not to do this. There's a group in our church that's beginning this. We're beginning this journey to actually listen to God. Not to just go through life with 50,000 things to do and act like that's the right thing. Act like we're just going to be okay and just do church as always. We might have forgotten the one necessary thing. Through all of this, through all of this pain, through all of this anxiety, through all of this stress, through all of this anger, through all of this polemical situation, through all of this red versus blue, through all of this division, the one necessary thing has been lost to simply sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to what he has for us. I challenge you to do that. Thank you, God, for this time that we have had. And I just ask that you would help us because there is withering And the only solution is that we are reconnected to you. We must once again come back and sit at the feet of you. May it be so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.